Thank you, Robin. Take your Bibles tonight, please, and turn to Luke chapter number 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at a text and look at a person that Jesus specifically told us to remember. Now, our memory is kind of like your, your grandparents' photo album. There's a couple of snapshots here and there, but a lot of them are just faded and wrinkled and you know, the older that you get and the longer you live and the more things you have happen to you, memories sort of just fade. And uh, even though we, we might remember some things very clearly, maybe the day we got saved, maybe our wedding day, uh, the birth of our children, even those significant days, I think you would agree with me that some of the details of those days, they just fade. You're not going to remember every single thing. And so it's good for us to remember things. It's in fact, I mean, in our country, we even have a day called Memorial Day for us to remember things because we're prone to forget. And so as we go through life, God puts up some kind of road, road marks and, and blocks for us to remind us that we're supposed to remember certain things. For instance, in the Bible, you know, the children of Israel were supposed to remember what God did for them when he pulled them out of Egypt. We, through the Lord's Supper, are supposed to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Why would you have to remember such significant things? Because we're prone to forget. And so he tells us 37 times in the Bible, he uses the word memory or memorial because we're prone to forget. He uses the word remember or remembered 210 times in the Bible because we are prone to forget. Even important things, things that we don't want to forget, we are prone to forget. But Jesus told us very specifically about one person that he goes out of his way to say, hey, remember this person. I wonder who it is that he would cause us to remember. In fact, this person is barely on the pages of Scripture. And yet Christ goes out of his way to tell us, hey, remember this person. Notice what the Bible says in Luke chapter number 17, verse number 24. We'll go to verse 24. It's the second coming of Christ. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Now, this is not the rapture, because here in verse 24, everyone's going to see this. It says, the lightning that lighteth out of one part of heaven shineth unto the other part. So this is something that's visible. This is the second coming of Christ. It says in verse 25, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So Christ is going to die, be crucified, and raise again, rise again. Verse 26, as it was in the days of Noah so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Notice in verse 27, that generation of Noah's day was sinful, but these are not sins. Notice that in verse 27, they were just living lives. He, God didn't call out their sin, even though he could have. In verse 27, they're just living lives and ignoring God. Bible says in verse 28, likewise also as it, as it was in the days of Lot, that it eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. Again, they were just living lives. It was a wicked generation, but he doesn't call that out. What he calls out is the fact that they had forgotten God. It says in verse 29, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, when he shall be upon the, the, I'm sorry, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him, let him likewise not return back. Here it is. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. 
and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Notice who Jesus tells us to remember, this unnamed woman that is barely even on the pages of Scripture. Jesus goes out of his way to tell us in verse 32, he says, remember Lot's wife. Now, before we get into who Lot's wife was, we must understand what happened at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah when it was destroyed. Before we turn to uh, Genesis chapter 19, I want you to first turn to Ezekiel chapter number 16. I'm going to look at Lot's wife tonight, but before we do that, I just want to make a, a mention about something that is uh, relatively common today, uh, and that has to do with what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Now, I'm going to show you a verse in the Bible that people will take, and they will use this verse to twist what was really happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. In this verse in Ezekiel chapter 16, it's going to, God's going to tell us what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. But liberals, specifically social justice warriors, people of that religion, because that, 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 that is a liberal humanistic religion that they're involved in, these people will tell you, because they don't want to think that God would destroy a city because of vile sexual perversion, which is what he did, they don't want to believe that. And so they find this verse, and they'll take this verse and twist it and convince some uh, uneducated Christian that Sodom was not really destroyed for what we think it was destroyed for. So let's look at what they, these, these humanistic liberals, will do. They'll point to this verse, and they'll say that this is the reason that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16, he's rebuking uh, Samaria. He's rebuking the Jews. And he says, he makes a comment in verse 49. He says, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. He's comparing the Jews and their immorality, their spiritual immorality, to the physical immorality that happened in Sodom. So in verse 49, he says, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, number one. Fullness of bread, number two. The abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, number three. Number four was neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. That phrase right there, that's what a social justice warrior will point to and say that God destroyed a city because they didn't help their neighbor enough. And it fits their narrative. That's what they do. But let's look at what really happened here. Verse 49 says, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Number one, pride. By the way, and then he kind of trickles down to these other sins. I just want to remind everybody that your number one sin is pride. Now, your pride is manifested in different ways, just like their pride in verse 49 and verse 50 was manifested in different ways. But at the end of the day, Proverbs chapter 6, the number one thing on God's hate list is a proud look. Your number one sin is your pride. It comes out as anger. It comes out as lust. It comes out as greed. It comes out as bitterness. It comes out as unforgiveness. But your number one problem you have is pride. And so that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that God would say the number one thing on, on God's hate list is pride and that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for pride. By the way, is it not interesting that this whole vile movement of homosexuals and transgenderism, is it not fascinating that out of the 170,000 words in the English language, the one word that they would pick as their one word anthem to describe their entire movement is what? Talk to me. Pride. Is that not fascinating? 
that they are absolutely lining up with Scripture when God says their problem is pride, and they are in the face of God telling you, yeah, that is our problem. That is our sin. We're proud of it. So let's look at this. Notice what happened in verse 49 was their pride, and then it came through as fullness of bread. It came through as abundance of idleness. It came through in verse 49 as they didn't uh, help the poor people. They didn't help the needy. And in verse 50, notice what they did. And they were haughty. That's another type of pride, outward pride. Pride is inward. Haughtiness is your, 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 the, the way in which you manifest your pride is your haughtiness. It's an outward action. Verse 50 says, uh, they were haughty and committed abomination. Notice this, before me. Don't miss that phrase, before me. That means in the face of God. If you ever read, some of us are reading through Genesis. If you read about Nimrod, uh, the Bible says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's the same mindset here. It's, it's in the face of God. It's, it's rebellion and in his face and I don't care. That's what this phrase is saying. So let's look at what the sin of Sodom was. It was pride, but of all the things that God could record, turn back to Genesis 19 and let's look at the one thing that God chose to record as a manifestation of their pride. God could have recorded any one of these things that they were struggling with and that they participated in. But God, God recorded one thing, and that's where we find Lot's wife. You see, this one scene that we're going to read about in Genesis 19, it's a fascinating scene. Honestly, it's a, it's a frightening scene. It's a vile scene. And in one moment, it's a heartbreaking scene to see what Lot does with his own children. But Lot's family, he, man, he was blessed. Lot was more gifted and more wealthy than you and I could ever fathom. Lot was so wealthy that his cattle grew to such a degree that there wasn't enough room for his cattle and Abraham's cattle. And so there was a strife, not between Abraham and Lot, but between Abraham's uh, herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And Abraham, being the more spiritual, uh, spiritually minded, gracious man, he offered Lot whatever, whichever direction he wanted to go, Abraham would give it to him. And Lot, because he was carnally minded, looked towards Sodom, pitched his tent towards Sodom, and moved his family into Sodom. And so we pick up the story here in, ver in chapter 19, where Lot has now been in Sodom for possibly 20 years. We don't really know He's been in Sodom long enough to have married children. And so that, that tells you, we don't know that he had grandchildren, but it tells you that he has married children. And there was no indication that he was married with, when he was with Abraham. If he was married, God didn't tell us. What, he, what we do know is that he was married here in Sodom and he had married uh, children. And so let's look at, uh, uh, where am I at? Genesis 19. And let's pick up the story of Lot in Sodom, which is going to bring us to remembering Lot's wife. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 19, there were, uh, and there came two angels uh, to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. So notice, Lot is sitting in the gate. The gate was, is where the elders would sit. The gate is where respected men would sit. This is the city council, the mayor, that type of mentality. These, these would have been prominent men in Sodom. And so Lot was a prominent man. He moved into Sodom. He became somebody in Sodom. And now he's a political figure in Sodom. But he almost falls out of his chair in verse 1 when he sees these two angels coming. He knew exactly who they were. In verse 1 it says, And Lot seeing them rose up to meet them, and he bowed, his, uh, he bowed himself with his face to the ground. 
and he immediately pays them homage and reverence. It's kind of interesting if you compare the first couple of verses to chapter 19 and compare it to how Abraham showed hospitality to these same angels in Jesus in chapter 18, it's almost identical. Uh, they re- uh, Lot raises up and bows himself. That's what Abraham does. Notice verse 2. He says, and he said, behold, now my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And so here Lot is showing them additional hospitality. It's actually the same thing that Abraham did. And so Lot learned a lot from Abraham, not just things of the spiritual nature and things of God, but he learned practical things about life. He learned his hospitality from Abraham. But it goes on in in verse (coughs) 2. In verse 2, at the end of verse 2, they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. Now, this is an odd thing. Lot invites them into the house. They, after they have been welcomed into somebody's home, they said, no, we're going to stay outside. Think about how strange that is. It's almost like they were saying, Lot, we know what goes on outside in the street all night. It's almost like they were saying, Lot, we know the vile city in which you live. Think about it. You're invited to somebody's house and you say, no, I'll sleep on the sidewalk. That's how odd this is. They, they, they were trying to p- poke and prod Lot into letting him know that, he, that, that they themselves knew what was going on. So he's putting on this big facade. He's putting on this big show. And, and so he begs them in verse 3. He says, and he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast. By the way, that's what Abraham did in chapter 18. The same exact thing. So in verse 3, it says he, 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 they entered into his house. He made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. And so he, he, he basically made them a meal. We don't know how long they were in the house. We know that in verse 1, it says that they appeared at even. And we know that in verse 4, they were about to go to bed. And so there's a space of a couple of hours there that they would have been in the house. I think it's interesting that Lot baked unleavened bread. This is the first reference to unleavened bread. The Mosaic law hadn't even come around yet. And for some reason... He either baked this because it was quicker to bake, but it's almost interesting that unleavened bread, leaven in the Bible is hypocrisy. And it's almost like God is saying to us, in Lot's heart, he's trying to put on a front by saying, hey, there's no hypocrisy in this house. There's no hypocrisy here. Now, I don't know if that's why God called out the unleavened bread. It is interesting that unleavened bread, this is the first reference, it didn't even become a thing until the time of Moses. So the Bible says in verse 4 that before they lay down, the men of the city, notice this phrase, even the men of Sodom compassed the house round about. Now, who are the men of Sodom? This is the second reference to the men of Sodom. Keep your hand here. Go back a couple of pages to verse uh, chapter uh, 13. Genesis chapter number 13. In Genesis 13, we're going to be introduced to the first time that the word sinners was used. Uh, First time that the, I I think even the word wicked is used. Notice uh, chapter 13, verse 13. And we have the same phrase, the men of Sodom. And in verse 13 of chapter 13, we're going to learn about their character and their actions. Notice what the Bible says in uh, Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom, there's the same phrase, the men of Sodom, were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Notice that phrase, before the Lord. Do you remember that from Ezekiel? When Ezekiel said they did it in my face, God said they did this in my face. They were brash and they were bold and they were arrogant about their sin. 
That's what, that's what God is telling us here in Genesis 13, 13, that the men of, sin, the men of Sodom were wicked and they were sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Think about how bad you have to be for God. Listen, the nicest word in the Bible to describe a sinner is ungodly. That's the best word that God gives. God doesn't play the game that we do by saying, calling an unsaved person a good man. God doesn't do that. The best unsaved person in the Bible is called ungodly, Psalm number one. But for you to be called a wicked sinner exceedingly, these were vile human beings. These were abnormal human beings. The pride that they exhibited was not like a normal kind of pride like what we have. It was an unnatural pride. It was a vile pride is what it was. And so go back to Genesis 19. Now that we know what Genesis 13 says about the men of Sodom, they were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. It gives us some context to what's happening in verse 4. The Bible says, but before they lay down, that's the two angels, the, the two angelic visitors that left Abraham in chapter 18 and came to Sodom in chapter 19. The Bible says that the men of Sodom compassed the house round, so they circled it around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So these angels were in the house long enough for word to have spread to the four quarters of the city and everyone was rounded up. These effectively, these sodomites were rounded up. They saw these two men. They heard about them coming in. And notice what they say. The Bible says in verse uh, 4, uh, the men of Sodom compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Verse 5, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, where are the men which came in unto these this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And these are vile human beings. They're not wanting to get to know these angels. They want to force their perversion on these holy, heavenly, divine visitors that have come to Lot to save Lot before destruction rains down. That's what these men want to do. They want to force their perversion on these uh, two angelic visitors. Notice what Lot does. This is, un this is unbelievably tragic in verse 6. Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. So, so, he, so he, he, he goes out, he closes the door. The, his, his wife, his daughters, and these two angels are inside. And he says in verse 7, I said, uh, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. And so he's calling them wicked to their face. He's calling their actions wicked to their face. And in verse 8, behold now, I, Lot, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Can you imagine doing this to your two daughters? Can you imagine offering your two pure daughters up to this mob? Unbelievably heartbreaking. I mean, how far do you have to go to think that this is a reasonable solution as you are being effectively mobbed by these wicked men of Sodom? Unbelievable. So he offers his two pure daughters to these men, and, and they basically mock him in verse 9. They said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, 
and came near to break the door. So they were pushing upon Lot and they were going to do unto Lot what they were going to do to the two angels and what Lot had offered them to do to his two daughters. Just a vile scene. The angels save his life. The Bible says in verse uh, 10, but the men, that's the angels on the inside of the house, the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door and they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. Notice that they, they, they gave this divine judgment upon these sodomites. He, he, the angels blinded them. Think about it. They were blinded by their vile lust only to be physically blinded by these angels. Would that stop you? Would that stop you being judged so severely and so immediately by God? It didn't stop these guys. Notice what the Bible says in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse, verse 11. They smote, the door, they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. Watch this. So that they, the Sodomites, wearied themselves to find the door. The judgment of God on their blindness did not stop them. They continued to look for the door. They continued to push forward in their sin in their vile, unnatural affection to the door to break down the door. Unbelievable scene. And so the Bible says that these men were struck with blindness. Uh, in verse uh, 12, the angels talked a lot. This is now inside the house. Verse 12 says, the men said on a lot, hast thou here any besides? And then they rattle off some people. Son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And by the way, remember, Ezekiel said that they were destroyed because of pride, and then he listed some sins. The one scene that we have of Sodom and Gomorrah is right here. And so you can finagle in your humanistic mindset, Ezekiel 16, to fit your social justice warrior if you want to. This is the scene that we have that God preserved for us. This is why they were destroyed. Yes, it was sin, but it was manifested in this type of behavior. The Bible says in verse 13, uh, the angel said they're going to destroy this place. Uh, go out and get whoever you can to, to be saved. Verse 14, Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he, Lot, seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So notice this. Lot had no standing with the men of Sodom. He, they thought that he was mocking them. This, this guy's going to come in and judge us. And now he has no standing with his sons-in-law. This man has no testimony, even in the most vile city uh, of ancient times. I mean, this guy is absolutely, yes, he is saved. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter that he has a righteous soul and that he was a righteous man. But this guy has absolutely lost his entire testimony for how he was living in Sodom. So he says that he seemed as one that mocked. Uh, verse 15, when the morning arose and the angels hastened Lot and said, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Notice verse 15 starts with, when the morning arose. So if you remember when the chapter started, it was at even, and then the, the angels were in the house for a couple of hours, and then it was time to go to bed. Well, now Lot had been outside in the middle of the night looking for people that were in his family that he could save from the destruction. And verse 15 is when the morning arose. And so this, this whole story takes place over many hours of time. So the Bible says in verse 15, the morning arose, 
the angels hasted Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here. And so that means Lot couldn't get anybody outside of his house to be saved. That means his sons-in-laws died and went to hell. His two daughters that were married to them died and went to hell. He had two additional sons. They died and went to hell. There, were ten, there seems to have been 10 people in Lot's family that could have been saved. Well, isn't that interesting? Because in chapter 18, that's the story where Abraham negotiated with God. And he started with 50 people. Hey, God, are you going to save? Are you going to destroy this uh, city if there's 50 righteous people? God said, I won't destroy it if there's 50. And then he goes down to 45, and then 40, and then 20, and then 30. And then talk to me, class, what number does God stop at? 10. And it's almost as if Abraham was saying, surely Lot could at least win his family. Surely Lot's testimony would be sufficient to at least win his family to the Lord. But it wasn't. It was him, it was his wife, and it was two daughters in verse 15. And the angel said, get out. Now listen, you would think under normal circumstances, we would flee like crazy. Notice verse 16. And while he lingered, he lingered. He, he didn't want to leave. His heart and affection really was in Sodom. He was a completely and a, a, a totally worldly believer. But even him, God was merciful to. By the way, uh, let me just say this. It is very easy to criticize Lot. All of us in 2024 holding a Bible in our hand, none of us think that we would be Lot. We read about Lot and we think, man, that guy's an idiot. I would submit to you, you have lingered on sin that has taken a hold of your heart. You have lingered in sin that has your affection. I have done the same thing. We might not be lingering in the exact same way. Make no mistake about it. God's mercy and God's grace in your life wants to bring you out of a certain sin. And yet, what do we do? We still linger. The Bible says in verse 16, while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. They had to physically remove Lot from this city. It says, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. So, quick question. How many angels are right here? How many we got? Two. How many hands are available? Four. How many people are being saved? Four. Each angel has a person in both hands. None of them wanted to leave. Lot was the leader. He lingered, but none of them wanted to leave. The entire family was given over to this carnality. I'm not saying that they participated in this. We know that they didn't because Peter says that, that Lot was vexed. Uh, the, the, the Bible says, uh, Peter says that Lot's righteous soul was vexed from day to day. What that means is Lot never actually agreed with the behavior. That's what that means. It means Lot was actually the greatest man in Sodom. I'm not saying that to be sarcastic. That is true. Lot was the greatest man in Sodom. He never agreed with the behavior, but there was something about that place, that worldly influence that just had captivated him, and he had had his affection there, but his wife and his two girls were the same. So these angels physically had to remove these four people from this wicked city. The Bible says in verse 16, 
uh, while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, upon the hand of his wife, upon the hand of his two daughters. Here it is, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And so by God's grace and God's mercy, all four of these people come out. Verse 17, this is, this is spoken to them by the angel, but make no mistake, this is God's instruction. Verse 17 is the angel was speaking, but this is God's word. The Bible says in verse 17, and it came to pass when they had brought forth, brought them forth abroad, he said, uh, that he said, this is one of the angels, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. So the instructions are very clear. If you're going to escape, run, don't look behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. That was very clear instructions. Lot has a conversation with them. And then the Bible says in verse 23, when the sun was risen upon the earth. And so if you remember, now this is even further past from uh, verse 15, when the Bible says the sun was beginning to rise. Now the sun's up. So verse 23, they had been running for quite some time. It says, the sun was up upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained, uh, rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, listen, if you're a dad, think about this. You've got your wife behind you and your two girls next to you. You know judgment is coming. You are running as far and as fast as you can. You know judgment hasn't fallen yet because even Lot, as carnal as he is, he knows, Lot knows that when judgment falls, he'll know it. So he doesn't have to look back. So he's got his girls with him and he is running as hard and as fast as he can. And all at once in verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 24, the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Can you imagine the noise possibly the volcanic action, the hailstones from heaven, the fire from heaven, the brimstone from heaven, the absolute deafening noise that would have occurred at this point. And it would have only been completely natural to be holding your girls, begging them, don't look back, don't look back, don't look back. But listen, you see a fender bender on the street. And what do you want to do? You want to look back. What, what about this? Think about this. Even Jonah wanted to go up and build a booth so he could watch the destruction of Nineveh. There's something in us that wants to look back. But the instructions were clear. Yeah. Don't look back. Right. So he has his daughters possibly in his hands. He's protecting them from looking back. But his wife is behind him. And the temptation was too great for her. The Bible says in verse 25, he overthrew those cities and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back. His wife looked back. Notice this. His wife looked back from behind him. So he, protecting his daughters, when that explosion happens, I don't know if they fell to the ground. I don't know if he covered them. I don't know what happened. But in his mind, he's thinking, my wife is going to be safe. I don't need to protect her. She is behind him. She doesn't think he's going to see. She'll just take a quick look, a glance. And instantaneously, in verse 26, his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning. Notice verse 27. Abraham got up early. God just skips, her, skips over her, doesn't give her a second word. 
He says what happens and then moves on with the story right over to Abraham. Doesn't even trip over the, uh, over the fact that this woman had such a unique death. But the command was obvious. The command was clear. It was don't look back. And this woman that we're told to remember, <coughs> she looked back. Notice this command. The command is in verse 17. Look not behind thee. Think about how difficult this command would have been. Lot and his wife had children in, in Sodom. Think about this. They were about to die. Would you not, if you're running from Sodom, wouldn't you want to look back to see if maybe they've decided to change their mind? Wouldn't you want to look back to see, hopefully one of my kids, my sons, my daughters, my sons-in-laws, someone is going to follow me. Wouldn't you want to just look back one more time to see if somebody was following you? This would have been a very difficult command. And possibly all she was doing was looking back to check on them. But Jesus, he was clear. Remember Lot's wife. So whatever she did here, this was dreadfully wrong. She looked back in the same way that Jesus said, hey, if you think you're fit for the kingdom of heaven, any servant that thinks they're fit for the kingdom of heaven, looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. It's the same phrase, meaning you're looking back with longing at what you used to have. You're looking back with desire at what you used to have. You're looking back at desire at what your life used to be. And so this command, it was difficult, but it was also very clear. It was difficult, but it was also very simple. Don't look back. Think about how easy it would have been if, if the command was don't go back. If the command was don't go back, that makes sense. Yeah, Sodom is going to be destroyed. I won't go back. But the command is don't even look back. Now listen, God doesn't check with me when he gives his commands. He doesn't care what I think. And even though I think, man, I ugh, don't look, all he did was look back. Listen, God couldn't have been more clear. So what can we learn about this woman who's unnamed in Scripture? Let's look at a couple things, practically speaking, that we can learn, and we'll wrap this up. What did she turn into? The Bible says in verse 26, it's very unique. The Bible says in verse 26, she looked back from behind him. She became a pillar of salt. The first thing I want you to see is the word she. You see, her, her punishment, it was specific to her. Her daughters didn't turn into a pillar of salt. Her husband did not turn into a pillar of salt. She turned into a pillar of salt. She paid for her own sins. Her girls didn't. Her husband didn't. Her parents didn't. She did. Notice the word became. The Bible says in verse 26, she became a pillar of salt. It doesn't say that she turned into, although she did turn into a pillar of salt. Do you know what the word become means? If I were to say to you, wow, that dress is very becoming of you. That means it's very fitting for you. That means it complements you well. When the Bible says that she became a pillar of salt, this was a fitting punishment for what she had done. She became a pillar of salt. This was becoming of her. This was fitting for her. She heard the word of God. She rejected the word of God. And so it was fitting that she would do this. She became a pillar of salt. Notice she became a pillar of salt. This is the first reference in the Bible to a pillar. Now, you might remember that the children of Israel were led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Pillars are often mentioned in the Bible. This is the first mention. By the way, pillars often in the Bible, they're used as memories or remembrances. In fact, in 2 Samuel 18, Absalom actually set up a pillar to himself because he said he won't have any sons to keep his name in remembrance. And so pillars go with memory hand in hand. 
And so it's kind of interesting that Jesus said, hey, remember Lot's wife, and she became a pillar of salt because a pillar is something that we use as a memorial. Also, it's kind of interesting if you think about it, this pillar of salt, we don't know how long it lasted for. Uh, supposedly in the first century, Josephus said that he saw it in his day. So we have no idea how long this pillar of salt lasted. We don't know. But we know this much. We don't know where it's at today. And so in the Old Testament, God wouldn't have had to told people to remember Lot's wife because they probably could have seen this pillar of salt. It is in the New Testament that Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife because we have no idea where it's at. They, in the Old Testament, would have had a visual reminder of what that woman did. In our day, we don't have that visual reminder. We don't have the statue, but thank God we do have the story. Amen. But let me ask you a question. Why salt? Why a pillar of salt? Why not pepper? Why not sugar? Why salt? I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. Uh, salt is mentioned in the Bible quite a bit. There's quite a bit of uses for salt. But, but I, I'll be honest with you, I could not find a good reason why she, why she was turned into a pillar of salt. I'll give you a thought, though. I can't prove this. I'll give you a thought. God was about to rain what on Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire and brimstone. You go home tonight, you pour out your salt and try to light it on fire. Guess what you won't be able to do? You won't be able to light it on fire. Salt doesn't burn like we think, like we think it burns. A match or a lighter burns at about 800 degrees. Salt will burn at about 1,500 degrees. And so maybe God turned her into a pillar of salt so that even after he was done destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, that pillar was still there reminding everyone what she had done, reminding everyone to not look back. But practically speaking, what can we learn from her? We can learn a couple of things. Number one, Lot's wife resisted and turned back on God's very clear will for her life. She did, not turn, she did not look back on a vague part of God's will. She turned back and looked back on a very clear, clearly stated portion of God's will for her life. The angel said, don't look back. She rejected that, looked back, and death was immediate. And when somebody goes through life and they reject the very clear clearly stated will of God about how to be saved, how to be born again. Listen, they will meet, they won't turn into a pillar of salt, but they will meet the same demise in the sense of death and in hell. What else do we learn from Lot's wife? Remember Lot's wife. Why should we remember her? Because she struggled to choose between God and the world. You see, her body was going toward the Lord, but her heart was still back in Sodom. And she looked back where her heart never left. Her body had left, her heart never did. You say, Brother Joe, I'm saved though. My heart doesn't do that. Well, let's apply this in our life today. Our struggle might not be between choosing between God and the world. Sometimes our struggle is between choosing God's will today and what God wanted for us yesterday. You see, sometimes God moves us to a new phase of life. And what we do is we constantly look back on what our old phase of life had for us. We constantly look back with this romantic idea of what life used to be and what I used to have. And I'm gonna tell you what, God doesn't want you to live like that. God wants you to move forward, not look back. What else do we remember about Lot's wife? She perished even though she was warned of danger to come. She had a special messenger from heaven warning them to escape for their lives and she rejected it. 
And I want to tell you, if you're in here right now, if you're in this room and you're listening to my voice right now, and you are unsaved, this is a terrible place to go to hell from. You are so responsible before a holy God for rejecting the clearly stated will of God for your life to be saved. She went to hell in the face of God's clearly stated will. What else can we remember about, God, uh, about Lot's wife? She died and went to hell even though she was married to a righteous man. Lot wasn't Abraham. He wasn't Moses. He wasn't, he wasn't Joshua. He wasn't even a great man of faith. But he was the best man in Sodom. And his wife could have learned from his faith. But she didn't. And she will give an account for that. His hypocrisy will not excuse her culpability before God. And this woman died and went to hell, even though she was married to technically a man of faith who eventually went to heaven. Why else do we remember Lot's wife? Because even though she separated from the world, she separated from the Sodomites, uh, she died just like them. She was making an effort to be saved, but she never quite crossed that threshold. She never truly accepted the Lord. She never truly opened her heart for what God had for her. She always longed for what was in the past, this worldly life that she had. And lastly, what can we remember about Lot's wife? She died even though she only committed one more sin. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, that one more sin, the looking back, that one more sin was a manifestation of her complete unbelief in God. That sin of unbelief was manifested in her disobedient look. But understand something. True faith looks forward, not backward. And this woman was not a woman of faith. She looked backward in unbelief. She looked backward, backward in disobedience. And she died and went to hell. At the end of the day, she went to, she went to hell because of her unbelief. And that is exactly why you will go to hell if you go to hell. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Listen, if you think you're fit for the kingdom of God, don't look back. And what he is saying there, he is saying, don't look back in unbelief. You look forward in faith, in the faith of Jesus Christ. Only Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins can be the propitiation for your, for your wicked soul. Remember Lot's wife, don't look back. He didn't say don't go back. He said don't even look back back. Brother Wally.